welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Summeroo. Hey everybody, this week I am joined by Gian Sira. He's a previous biotech entrepreneur. He's raised $16 million doing so, and he's a previous investor at Octopus Ventures in their health team. Now, he helps tech founders and he helps them raise VC money by helping them building fundraising operating systems. We can talk about what that means. Uh, And his founders have gone on to raise over $150 million doing this. Uh, Guillaume, it's been a while, mate. You were on this podcast five years ago and uh, yeah, you've done some of that in the intro, but uh, you've done a lot more since. Uh, How you doing, mate? Yeah, doing well. Yeah, I've just uh, I just came back on a flight from from Bali, so like twenty hours flight. So, um, very much feeling the jet lag, but it's oh, good to be back life. in a uh, cold and rainy England. Oh, absolutely, absolutely hard hard life, mate, coming back from Bali. Um, but actually, that does form part of your story. Actually, living out there and solopreneuring and all that sort of stuff. But let's start. Uh, if it, by the way, if people do want to go back and listen to your story, uh, it's one of the very early episodes of this podcast a few years ago, um, when you were Octopus Ventures and all that sort of stuff, but catch us up. So last time you were at Octopus, you were investing in their health team. Now you have got, uh, your own company, your own business. You are helping founders raise money. Uh, tell us about it, mate. You went from the, the nice employed safe world to the entrepreneurship world, which, uh, comes thwart with all its difficulties and, and wonders and all the rest of it. So yeah, why don't you why don't you tell us tell us a bit of that journey? Sure, yeah, happy to. So I don't know if I actually said it in the previous recording or the previous podcast, but um I've been an entrepreneur at heart my whole life. I felt like when I was even investing, it was kind of like a it was a stopgap basically for me. And when I was about eighteen, I thought I wanted to be a VC backed founder. So my whole journey up until even when I was at Octopus was I want to be a VC-backed founder and was moving into health and I thought it was going to be a health tech or a biotech company. And it was actually funny enough at Octopus where I kind of had my my midlife crisis, I guess you could say, or a quarter life crisis in that basically because, you know, we'd, I, I was, we were looking at 4,000 deals a year. I was probably myself looking at 500 plus We'd seen a lot. We'd had, you know, we had a hundred plus portfolio companies at that point. So I saw the ones that I saw thousands a year that weren't actually going to, you know, we are actually we're not actually going to invest into. I saw another hundred that we actually invested into, and I saw out of those hundred, the ones that you know are actually going to be successful than weren't. And especially spending more time with the portfolio, I really started to get more pattern recognition and actually seeing what it takes to be a successful VC-backed founder and the things you need in terms of your personality, in terms of your drive and everything about that um, to actually build a successful company. And it wasn't just even a successful company. It was also seeing all the founders that, you know, didn't actually make a successful company and spent all this time and was sacrificing. I remember one portfolio company where we actually, they actually sold for about a hundred million pounds. So a lot of money wasn't amazing for our fund, but like a lot of money for them. And, you know, they, they got a fairly good, payout from it. And I remember um, having a having a beer and we were having a celebratory basically party for them for having such a large exit. And I remember the founders saying, you know, saying to them like, congratulations. And they said, yeah, but I've spent, you know, 10 years and sacrificing myself for this. Like, is it worth it? So I was going through that. I was seeing all of that in Octopus. And again, when I went into Octopus, I was thinking of it as just a stopgap before I started my own thing and getting that side of the table before I became a founder again. 
And it was actually there where I was, it, it kind of, my whole life came crumbling down because this 10 year journey of, I want to be a VC back founder made me realize that I don't think I actually do. Like I, I had to really kind of step back and be like, why did I back then? And then this next 10 years do this? Why do I want to do this? And I realized it was purely ego. It was purely to be in tech crunch. I didn't really have, you know, an idea that I was like sold on. That was like, I have to solve this for the next 10 years. It was very much just, I wanted people to think that I'm a VC back founder. Um, so that was really hard for me, but at the same time, quite freeing. Um, and, and then did that. So yeah, basically about three years into Octopus was like, I don't want to be in a nine to five, but I also don't want to be a VC back founder. Like, what do I want to do? So basically, yeah, I took a, a semi sabbatical for about six months, about August, September, 2020. Um, and at that point I was trying a lot of different things. I was trying to be a comedian. I was trying to be a football agent. I was trying to do all of these other things. I was basically trying to get my kind of creative juices, try and do something entrepreneurial, but, um, you know, try and keep to what I actually really love doing, which is that entrepreneurial creative side and building things, but not kind of VC backed. And it was actually, at, it was in my spare time, I was helping two founders and I actually was just helping them with their fundraising. It came from my network. I was, had, didn't have a job. I was bored. It was lockdowns. I was like, you know what? I'll help these two people for free. May as well just see what happens. Ended up helping them raise uh, about one and a half, two million pounds. And with those two, and it was actually, I remember talking to you, I think it was like January, 2021 saying like this happened. And then you telling me, why don't you, why don't you start, you know, why don't you start a business? So this all kind of game from James, funnily enough. So what you've evidently liked doing it. Why don't you start a business? And I was like, you know what, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe there is something here. I obviously enjoy doing this. I have a passion for teaching. I always have. Um, and yeah, it kind of spawned from that for about, so about two and a half, three years ago. Um, and I moved from a different, a lot of different things. I very much treated this like a tech startup in that I'm, well, the last two years I was pivoting a lot and finding basically three different things, which was what do I actually enjoy doing and what can I actually help with? Like, what's my specialty? What do actually founders want? Which is a small part, but very important. Like, what do they, what do they want? And the last one is what do they actually need to be successful at fundraising? So the first two years I was doing a lot of different things, working, tinkering, seeing what I can do and build from that. And then about six months ago, so about two years in, I realized what I realized it was pivoted into what I'm doing now, which is what I call fundraising operating systems. But it's basically everything to do with the prep and work and systems in place for how you successfully fundraise. So that goes into anything from how to build a network, how to actually communicate through your narrative and general comms. And then also the last one, which is how do you actually build a fundraising process to prepare, launch, and then complete a fundraise to completion. So that's basically what's happened in the last like four years, I guess you could say. Oh, it's a heck of a journey, mate. And <laughs> thank you for saying it's all for me. It absolutely was not. I mean, it's so funny because when you, <laughs> you literally just laid it all out on a plate of like, here's my expertise, here's my network, here's the, some of the things I could do. <laughs> my role was simply, why don't you just do this? <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> you yeah, yeah. just laid out on a plate. It was a catalyst though. It was, there was definitely a catalyst. Mate. No, no, that's fair. And that's, uh, and, and thank you for saying that. <laughs> I would just say it was the possibly some of the easiest advice I've ever given, or not even advice, just a question that I asked. <laughs> but um, no, I think, I think you put it out on, on a plate for me. But there's loads in there, mate, I want to talk about. So the first thing is, I think this is so, so, so important for people listening to this podcast that have the feeling that I want to be a VC-backed founder. 
That is such a, that's such a phrase. It's such a feeling. It's such a vibe. It's, and like you say, it comes along with this sort of mood board of like tech crunch and dollar signs and pound signs and, and, and influence and power and money and impact and creating something in the world that's wonderful. There's, there's quite a lot on that mood board of I want to be a VC backed founder. And I think there's a reality that sits behind that that you then started talking about, which is, Failure, tough days, mental health, physical health, diet and exercise going out. Like there's there's quite a lot and sacrifice you mentioned, um, not seeing yeah, one's definitely. loved ones, working at weekends and evenings and 24-7. And there's a there's a there's another mood board that sits along there, which is like what it takes to be that, what it takes to be successful being that. And actually you, you laid it out there. Like most people actually fail as well. Like failure is the type of exit, which I've heard on this podcast before. Like it's the most common exit. Yeah, definitely. The most common exit, right? Like, and it's squaring all of that against the image that I have for myself. The image that I have for myself is VC back founder. It comes along with these things, but the reality is I need to build a company worth a billion dollars. And actually, that's the reality. And how do I do that? What do I need to sacrifice to do that? What does that actually take? And all those types of things. And am I going to be happy about it, right? This is it. Am I, am I going to be happy? Because it's about identity. It's about self-awareness. And quite rightly, you identified of yourself, well, perhaps quite a lot of this is attached to ego. I think that might be perhaps a little bit too self-deprecating. I think it might have been attached to more than just your ego, probably the impact you could have made and probably what it meant for you and feeling fulfilled. And there's quite a lot that perhaps goes into that statement that I, I might challenge that I don't think you're an ego-driven person, which maybe was what ended up with you deviating from this path, actually. But self-awareness, let's talk about that because that's what led to you creating a life that you now enjoy and is more authentic and true to you, still helping founders with raising money, still at least in part in health tech and biotech. I know you serve other sectors too, but it was that journey of self-awareness that got you to the point of where you are now. So how difficult was that? What did you actually do to learn about yourself to figure out VC back founder is not my path. It's something else. Like, how did you figure that out? And the reason I ask is because I think this is a process that we all could benefit from going through to put us on a path that is yeah. better for us, be it in health tech or biotech or anything. And so talk to me about that. Yeah. So it's funny. It was, it, it came from, it came from a conversation I had with a exited founder. Like he sold his company for I think just under a billion dollars. I can't remember the exact number. And I was talking to him about this stuff and being like, wow, like amazing. You've, you've done this. Like, you know, had got to the echelons that I wanted at the, at the time. And I was like, you must be so happy with that exit. And he just straight up mm. said to me, no, like my favorite part was the process. I missed the process. I missed the beginning part. And it was that kind of process, that kind of thought. And you, you're right, you know, when I say ego, it's not, that's maybe a bit too self-deprecating. There's a lot of depth underneath that. And for me, you know, one of the, one of the things I started to realize is I didn't necessarily really in, was enjoying my life as a venture capitalist because I needed that kind of creative building juices and entrepreneurial juices to come out of me. And I wasn't doing it in a, you know, a corporate nine to five. I was thinking about this, like, okay, I, 
I want to help. I need, I need to make sure that I love the process. I need to make sure that the, the journey I go on is something that I enjoy doing. And will I really enjoy doing a VC backed business? Like hire, do I really want to hire a hundred people plus? Do I really want to have investors that I have to, you know, go to? And, you know, I saw the other side as an investor and what they actually asked from you. And it's not just, it's not, you know, you are technically giving away control of your company a lot of the time. So it's all of these kind of things of like, do I actually enjoy the process? Like, am I going to enjoy the process? And for a lot of founders, sometimes they don't necessarily enjoy the process, but they have this one vision, you know, at Octopus, we called it a North Star vision, right? They've either been in the industry and they want to change this one thing or, you know, especially in health, you know, they, something happened to them in health and they said, I need to change this because, you know, this happened to me or my significant other or my family or my friends and I'm going to spend my whole time doing this. I didn't have anything like that. So I had nothing like that. I was looking at the process and being like, I don't think I'm going to enjoy my day to day doing this. If anything, I'm just going to be stressed. And then I don't have anything to back go into that, you know, actually going to give me there. So those are the two things that pretty much were the catalyst, the start of, okay, this is not, this is not right for me. I'm not going to pretend I um, had this like one secret silver bullet of exercise I did. And then it completely changed what I was doing for me. Um, for me, it was more that it was, it did that. And then I had like a six months of just kind of trying a lot of different things, which is, I think the if you're going to do anything, I think that's what you should do. And it's just try a lot of things in life and then find out what you actually like. I see it in all the time with what I'm doing in, in entrepreneurship, but then also in founder operating systems, this kind of stuff. But it's, I guess it, it's become one of my kind of life things is action is one of the most, what well, is the most important thing you can do. And the most common reason why fat people fail in anything whether it's sport, whether it's, you know, education, whether it's entrepreneurship, whatever it is, it's just a lack of action. They're just not doing any act. They're not doing the things they need to do. So I think, I think that's the biggest thing is just try loads of different things and then you'll fall into the thing you want to do. A great example. Again, I I said it earlier, but one of my thoughts is I wanted to potentially be a comedian. Right. And I was like, okay, do I actually want to be a comedian? Now I could have just sat around thinking about being a comedian a lot of the time. But what I did is I just went out and tried to be a comedian. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to do this for 10 years. Again, going back into, I don't think I want to do this to 10 years before I get success. That that process, I don't enjoy this enough. If I was just like thinking about it the whole time, I could have thought about it for a year and be like, maybe I'll still do it. But I did it for two months. It was like three months. I was like, no, not for me. Done. Glad I tried it, but you know, I can move on. It was the same with this, right? I, I was just helping founders in my spare time. I was like, you know what? I'm going to try this. And I could have been like, you know what? Maybe I'll try it in six months. Let me try different things. I was like, just try it. And I think that's the biggest thing of just, if you think there's something interesting, try it, see if it works and then fail fast. Just if it doesn't work. It's not working. Mm. Quit. But the worst thing you can do and where I see most people fail is they're just going to talk to people about it and then never do anything. <laughs> um, I think yeah. that's the biggest thing. So you're an investor at Octopus Ventures, right? And you were looking at 500 decks per year, which is a lot. That's, that's it's more than one a day. How does an investor look at a deck? Give us some insight here. Very actionable insight for anybody listening. VC looking at a deck, what do they do? Yeah, look, it's a great question. And a large part of being a VC-backed founder is pattern recognition, right? It's just getting as many, like the muscle of your VC, it's just getting it out there seeing what looks good and what looks bad. And then basically within an instant being like, okay, I know what looks good or bad. Okay. So uh, there was a doc send study that said that VCs look at decks 
I think it's two minutes, 33 seconds. I can't remember, or 34 seconds. I actually don't believe in that stat. I think it's a lot less. I think it's probably closer to I a minute. I was going to say, it sounds a bit and high. what NBC will do is they'll open up the deck. And again, you've got, again, you've got to realize again, sit in the seat, the scene of a seat or rather of a, an investor. They're not looking at a deck a day. They're kind of probably going to do it in batches, right? They're going to look at seven or eight at a time, mm-hmm. maybe twice a week, something like that. Now, they, they know they've got this time gap, right? Or they need to look at this deck and basically instantly be like, okay, do I like this or not? And what they're going to do is they're going to do something called the flick test, which they'll quickly look through the slides and just see if they should spend more time on it. And there's a few things that they, the first things they do, right? The first thing is design. Does it look nice? If the founder can't even design their deck, it's basically showing homework, right? If, if it's badly designed, it probably means that their whole company is badly designed. So design is one thing. It's very easy to make a nice design deck now. There's no there's no need to use PowerPoint. There's multiple different tools that you can use from Canva to pitch.com. And now, especially with Jennifer AI, you can pretty much make a pitch deck look nice within a second of just like some stuff, um, some prompts. So design is the first thing. The second thing is hook, right? It's why should I spend more time on this? Why should I spend the two and a half minutes, three minutes actually delving into whether I like this company? And those usually come in the first three to five slides. There's no right answer here. A lot of the time it's problem solution. It doesn't have to be problem solution. You're just trying to find a hook of why that investor should say, you know what, I'm actually going to spend some more time delving deeper into it. Now you know those two things. Design is very important and that they don't really spend a lot of time on and you need to get them hooked. What a lot of founders do wrong with the pitch deck is they spend too much time thinking that that's going to be the reason why they get investment. And thinking of the pitch deck as something that will get them investment. That's not what the tool is there for. It's a tool to make some, someone excited and want to have a meeting with you. So some stuff around there, right? Like pitch decks, for example, is again, like I said, they do a flick test. They just want to squ- quickly scroll through and see if you like it. The way I think of it is like design wise is you should have a descriptive large title. So I should be able to, the best pitch decks, I can look through, I can quickly go through your pitch deck. I don't have to look at any of the body of the pitch deck. I can just look at the titles. It flows like a story. Mm-hmm. And I basically can know everything I need to know just by looking at the titles. That's the best pitch decks. Um, the second is nicely designed. So there's nothing I, you know, I can't, I don't understand. There's only one single thing per slide. Um, and that it flows connectedly. And the last thing is, again, coming back to design is it's not just a bunch of words. I'm not going to read a bunch of words. I don't have enough time on it. I just want to see, you know, nice graphics, you know, big numbers when it needs to be. The rule of threes is sometimes what they say. It's these kind of things. But what you realize is the pitch deck is, it's a vehicle to get you a meeting. It's very much a Hmm. easy, simple way of saying, I want to speak to this person, not I'm going to give them everything. So sometimes omitting things, for example, is actually a really good thing because they want to say, you know what, I want to meet this person and ask that question and keeping it nice and short and sweet. That's the main goal. Um, And I see what most founders do is, they just spend too much time tinkering with their pitch deck. Another thing as well within that is there's massive diminishing returns with building a pitch deck. You know, you can get to 80% done and you're going to spend, you know, months on end trying to tinker with this pitch deck, trying to get it to a perfect state when it's not going to do anything for you, where a pitch deck to your success, your fundraise is 5%. So what I see a lot of founders do is, They spend months on months on end trying to tinker with their pitch deck, which is about 5% of the work you need to do for your fundraise. 
and all the other things they just haven't done. So when they come to me and I say, hey, what have you done this? Have you, you, know, have you built your network? Have you worked on narrative? Have you done exercise around comms? Do you know the process you're doing? How does that work? Do you know the launch timeline? Have you warmed up your network? All of this stuff. I'm like, no, we we're just building our pitch deck. But now our pitch deck's done. It's great. And the biggest thing I see founders fail at is this, is, is they spend so much time with their pitch deck thinking that it's going to do anything for them when it's not that they don't do the other things that are they're actually going to move the needle. So I think the biggest thing in the pitch deck is get it to a good state, get it to 80% and then focus on the other things. Or, you know, what we do with my founders is we work on the backend stuff, get to what I call a core narrative. And then once you've got the core narrative, then you can actually build a pitch deck from it. But until you do all that stuff and build the story and how you're going to do it, then you can't really do all these things. Yeah. Interesting. Because I think, most people will think that a raise is all about the deck, the deck, and then how you present the deck. And that's all a raise is. That's all a seed mm. fundraise is about. And actually, yeah, okay, it's about the idea and the team and everything that goes into the pitch deck, but then it's just a case of how do I now present this to an investor so they invest in me? Let's now educate people on what are those other things that go around that. You rattled off a few there, prepping your network, having a timeline, all, all that sort of stuff. So this obviously is now how you coach people. So what does that look like? What does the perfect raise process look like? And how do you get people from a state of not having any of this to being able to maximize their chance of having a successful round? I always start with founders on this, and it's the most important thing you can do is the first thing you have to understand is how investors think. Right, you have to get into the psychology of what it means to be an investor, what they're doing, why they're doing what they're doing, because then you can then understand, you can backtrack from that and see, okay, what do I have to do as a founder to make them want to invest into me? Right. And up until even series By B way, and C. Very I'm good point. Sorry to interrupt, but very, very okay. good point because the amount of founders that I, that, that, I, that I meet that don't actually know the, the business model of VC is really interesting. And I think people are going searching for money from VCs, thinking that VCs are just rich people or the, the rich or like it, it doesn't work that way. Actually, VC business model is about they are a group of people that raise money from limited partners, mm. LPs. They become general partners, GPs. And as a group of people, they have to find investments and give most of the profit back to their investors. And yeah. people don't often realize this. Um, and you need to know the nature of tech companies, like what it means, right? And portfolio management, like what is building a portfolio and what that means to them, right? Because once you understand this stuff, and, th and then the second thing on that as well is you need to get into the psychology and the shoes of an investor of them investing into types of companies like yourself. And what I mean by that is, you know, even, and I've spoken to, you know, growth investors who invest into B, C, and D rounds, and they, they say the exact same thing as me, what I'm about to say, within reason, obviously, um, is up until series A and even A, even A, but up until, let's say, series B, there's three things that are kind of a constant within these startups, right? One is everything is up to chance. There's no real, there's no real knowledge of what's going to happen. The second is if, if the future is unknown. You're trying to, you know, if you're trying to change an industry, and actually, you know, completely change it and change all this stuff and change business model and innovate in a market, the future is unknown, right? Either a startup that you've never heard of is coming up and actually making a better one, a better technology than you or whatever, or you just, something else is going to happen, right? Like, you know, regulation in the health side or, you know, this thing's going to happen or whatever is going to completely change anything. So the future is unknown. And the last one is everything is based around 
the indirect or the direct decisions of the founders, right? So once you know these three constants and investors know this and they're thinking about this, it's pretty much just a, it's a luck game, right? And a risk game and a risk mitigation game and basically just backing the right person. That's all it is. It's not, you, you even the idea is even probably going to be wrong. I think, I can't remember the exact data now. I think it's 70% was a study by Do, uh, Station F and Sifted where they showed that 70% of startups before series A pivot in some kind, right? So before series A, 70% of the startups that an investor is going to invest into is going to pivot in some way. So it's never about the idea. So all of these things, right? So it's, it's about the founder. It's always about the founder, right? And there's a lot of different things in there. There's a lot of nuance around it because it's about person investing into a person. There's no objective measurement to it. And what I say by that and, and where this all comes to and what I try and build around and the whole, I, what I believe is the core of fundraising is the perception that you create of how amazing you are as a founder is the core of fundraising. If you can be perceived as the best founder in your market, the one that's going to succeed, the special founder, the one who's doing all the right things, you're going to get investment, right? So perception and the way you create it is the core of a successful fundraise or not. And there's a multitude of different things you have to do within how you create that. The first one is building an amazing network, creating a brand and a founder brand and, you know, all the the PR and everything you do to make sure that you're the person known in your industry. It's the perception you create with your network in terms of, the warm connections and how you perceived when you get introed into the investors. They've never met you before, but someone that they really respect has said, Hey, James is the best founder I've ever met. You have to meet him and he's, he's fundraising right now. But then it's also the perception you create during the meetings, right? Whether it's how you pitch, uh, communication is something which I don't know anyone else who does this in fact, but one of the things I work with my founders on is literally just comms. And what I mean by that is not just how to pitch to us, how to pitch in a pitch meeting, which is important and we definitely work on, but it's the nuances like how you, how are you actually sending your email? Like, what are you saying in the words in your email or how, what are the words you say when you're in a meeting? And I don't, again, I'm not talking about how you pitch your company. I'm saying, are you coming across desperate? You know, are you, are you actually, you know, putting in exclusivity deadlines into your comms? Are you making someone think, wow, this is, there is actually momentum in this round and this company is amazing and this founder is amazing. And within those comms, it can literally be a change of word or an off-the-cuff comment that can completely go you from high perception to low perception. So it's all of these nuances and this is why fundraising is so hard and why, um, you know, unfortunately there's no, well, I'll be out of a job, but unfortunately um, there's no like, you know, secret bullet or something that you can just, you know, use and learn and then do it. But it's all of these things, right? And, and, and these are the, these are the things. It's, it's, fundraising is literally an art. It's more of an art than a science. It's probably about 70 to 80% art to science. And it is all of these things of, of how can you make an investor feel that you are the best founder? In that way, and that's done is perception. So that, that and so those three kind of pillars, like I said before, it's your network, it's your narrative and comms, and then your process. Those are the three kind of pillars of how you create that high perception. And once you've got that high perception, once an investor, you know, believes that you're the best founder, that you're going to do this thing, they believe in your vision and they really perceive that you're the best founder that they've met in the last year, they'll invest into you and it'll be very easy to get investment from someone. Um, but the ones that, you know, you don't have a good connection into, or you again, off the cuff comment that makes you have a low perception or you haven't got a right process. So everything's kind of scattered and there's no real momentum in what you're doing. 
you won't get investment. And that's where most founders fail is, is they don't create the right perception. It's so interesting, man, because it's like, so it's so similar to how we would approach a company with a business problem. A company has a business problem and we consider what is their brand and their, and what goes into their brand is of course, how they're communicating, how they're appearing, their aesthetic, their this, their that, their tone of voice, like blah, blah, like it all contributes to brand, doesn't it? And brand if nothing else is another way of saying perception and how that company is perceived by various audiences. And it's just, a, it's interesting our crossover our worlds, actually. I mean, you're talking about a very focused full communications plan, essentially, which incorporates tone of voice and aesthetic and all the things that we would cover and content and all the rest of it, um, contributing to personal brand and increasing the perception of, uh, amongst a very precise audience of series, whatever investors. So yeah, definitely. And you know, again, you know, it's because, you know, it's people and people. I think this is where people founders mess up with fundraising is they think because there's money involved, there's some like score or like internal thing that NBCs do. And then they decide on the companies in that way. And it's very data driven, but it's not, it's, it's still very much, do I feel like this is the right one? And can I, with those feelings, find some level of connection of how, why I think this is a good idea, but it's always emotions first, mm. data second. And it's exactly like you just said, it's similar to what you do in PR in that it's PR is the same. It's emotions first, logic second. And you need to think of that way every time. You're absolutely right. It was a rude awakening for me coming from medicine where we have a national uh, scoring process for how you get your jobs and application systems with points and they are independently scored and blah, blah, blah. Like, and yeah, okay. This, the, the system can fall down at various places and people can get, get, get a strange score and the rest of it. But ultimately it's, it's a, it's a very quantitative method of putting doctors in various places in the country. For me to then uncover the fact that yes, especially seed investing is largely just based on finger in the wind, like, okay, they look like a good founder. And of course those investors are controlling what they can control. Are they a good founder based on various things that they consider? Can they answer questions on the industry? Are they a domain expert? Do they have technical expertise? Do they have complementary skills? All of these things, of course, are the controllable, but within the group that binary pass all of those things, it then, as you're, as you're saying, it does become on gut feel of the investor. I, I want to talk about process next, because I think assuming that we have all of those things covered, we've built a network before we were raising, by the way, we've built a network, we've met some people connected to VCs and investors. We've met the investors themselves and told them we're not raising yet, but here's what we're doing. Have you got any advice? Like we've done those meetings. We've built a network. There's a group of people now that we, that we have on an email list that we could mm -hmm. then send an email to at the point that we are raising. Let's assume we've got our comms together. Let's assume we've, we've got an 80% deck that we've, that we've now said we're happy with, uh, and we're ready to start that raise. Talk to me about process now. Yeah, so process is a really interesting one, right? And it it, it, it all kind of intertwines into the comms and stuff, right? It's not something that process is like separate to this. They all kind of intertwine into each other, right? So I say, for example, fundraising process, a lot of it's prep, right? The prep you do with your fundraising process is the one of the most important things to make sure that during your process is successful. And there's a couple of things within the prep and the launch, right? 
So I say that you should spend about a month to a month and a half before you officially launch your fundraise, like officially doing certain things, right? And a couple of these things are, for example, warming up your network, um, actually meeting some angel investors to get some extra connections, but then also, you know, some um, people who are actually, um, you know, invested into you, into a, a new investment. There's also prep way before that within your new, your actual current investors and doing all this stuff. Um, but then another thing as well is, and this is another thing that I've seen founders fail at, and this is where having a system and process in place is practice is one of the most important things you can do for your fundraise. There's a, there's mass, there's this massive information asymmetry within fundraising in terms of investors see, you know, hundreds of deals a year, you know, what I sat in probably, I don't know how many, probably over a hundred first meetings a year, probably more, probably like 200 first meetings a year. Right. So I, I saw so many companies and saw so many processes go through and I, you know, invested into about two or three a year, led myself one probably looked was kind of partly with about two or three a year in my fund. And then our fund as a whole did like 20 plus a year. You know, I so saw so much as an investor, like so much, whereas a founder is going to fundraise once a year, oh, sorry, once every two years, something like that. They're going to go through one thing. They're going to see something once. So practice is so important because you just don't have enough time to practice. And it's what I see a lot of founders do, and this is where I'm saying it kind of comes connected, right? Is there's only so much you can do prep work from an educational point of view within, you know, learning about doing exercises, doing this, building a narrative before you actually just have to get out there and practice with family and friends, lower tier investors, all of this stuff to then tinker with and work on how you do your first meeting or how you answer questions or how you do the process and all of these kind of small things, right? So a big part about process is well, a couple of weeks, three, four weeks before you officially launch your fundraise, actually jumping in practice calls, recording yourself, looking what you're doing, working on why, why this isn't working or why this is working, finding out the major questions you're going to get asked, for example, and actually building content around it. This is another thing that I see founders fail at within their process is they just don't follow up. They don't, they, you know, they meet an investor and they wait a week before they do anything. Whereas if you do all the proper preparation and you have a process in place of how you do it and you know when you're going to launch, you know the first few weeks before what you're doing, you can jump in a practice, you can jump in 20 practice calls with investors that you don't really care about that if they say no to you, that's okay because you haven't officially launched. But you can find out, for example, the two, three, is about two to five major questions you're going to get asked usually of your round. You're like, okay, I know the two to five major questions that are going to be the major ones that most investors ask me. Now what do I do? Okay, I actually prepare how I answer them better. I look back at my recordings. Where did I go wrong? What made someone confused? What made someone bored? Where did I ramble on? The second thing is, okay, how do I make extra content around this? Is it an Excel document? Is it a Word document to help them with the extra? Is it, you know, slide deck, you know, an extra few slides to kind of explain this so that once I jump off a first meeting, it's not cool, thanks, yeah, you know, great. Or, you know, I send a rambling email about something that they asked. It's I know the exact question they asked me because everyone else does. I've got a slide deck for them. I send it to them within two hours of meeting them saying, here's exactly what you wanted. Here's a bit more information. Let's jump on another call. No founder does that. But that's something you should really be doing. That's one thing about process. Um, the second thing, again, pre preparation is what builds the process in terms of if you'd launch correctly, you should be having most of your meetings in the first two weeks. And that's how you build momentum. And within that process, one of the things you'd be doing is, and if you've done it correctly, is you should be thinking of it like a cohort, right? In where you keep everyone at the same time and you build that competition. So if someone's maybe moving a bit too fast, you kind of pull them back, 
right? And if someone's moving a bit too slow, you pull them forward and say like, guys, you know, this this group of investors who are going to data room or moving further and further down the line, you need to act fast. And that's where the process really comes from. But again, it comes from the right preparation. It comes from doing the right things. And it comes from how you do that. Another thing within process where I've seen founders mess up all the time because I have to make sure they do it with every single one I do is because you don't have a process and you don't have a system in place, something as simple as a weekly meeting, right? You have a process meeting in place where every week you sit down for 30 minutes to an hour saying, what's actually happened this week? Who do I have to email? What do I email them with? All of this kind of stuff. So nothing gets lost. But it's these systems in place and the process that allows you to carry on doing the right things and following up and emailing when you need to, not emailing when you not need to, and focusing on the right things. Um, so that's how I think about process. A lot is in preparation and a lot is in the things you do to make sure you're doing it. But again, this comes back to you can't really know what you need to do unless you really sit in the shoes of an investor and be like, okay, why do investors think this way? And how do I make sure that the things I'm doing make them excited? Mm. Now, let's say we've been through our process and we've had our meetings. And I, I, in fact, this is something that you and I have spoken about before. You can get to the end of what you can consider to be quite a successful process where you feel like you've done everything right and nothing's happening for you. And particularly at a time like this, right? Really tough economy seemingly less deals going on, more likely that people are getting towards the end of their process thinking this might actually not happen here. And that fear starts to creep in and thinking mm. about what job can I get when all this fails starts to creep, starts to creep in. What should founders be doing at that stage? Like what, what, I mean, is are they are they are they warranted in that? Like, what? Talk to me about that that bit specifically, because that's very. Everyone's been there, right? Yeah. So I would say, so every single founder I've ever worked with, I'm not even joking. Like, probably 99 percent of the founders I've worked with, and then even when I was doing my fundraises, there's a point where you are very late stage, and you think everyone's going to say no, and that's it, right? So if you've actually got people who are you know talking to you about potentially going to IC they're past the data room and they want to spend more time with you, you're in a good position. And look, there's a chance that they're going to say no, there always is, but you're in a good position, right? So I would say, and again, most founders have going to be, who've successfully fundraised have felt the same way that you have. And it's just about getting that first term sheet and leveraging it into the, the rest of them. That being said, I would say there's two things on this, right? One is if you go through that and then everyone starts saying no, Sometimes it's better to just fail fast and create a party round, for example, of the people who are committed, finding a way to just get funding and then, you know, leverage that to then get to the next step, whether it's a year away and just that next milestone. What was that? Sorry, create a party round, did you just say? So a party round is, um, so let's say that what a lot of, what a lot of things happened, right? This is very common where you'll get a lot of investors saying, I really like what you're doing. I really like you, James. I want to, I like your company, but I'm only going to follow one. Right. So let's say you're raising a million pounds and you've got 600K investors saying, I want to, I want to invest into you, but I just want to follow on. But you just can't get that lead investor. Right. The worst thing you can do is just carry on fundraising for six months. And I'll say before, um, before I go into the next part, which is the second part I said, um, about like just generally fundraising and failing. If this happens to you, right, it's always better to just fail fast 
and take, okay, look, I'm not going to get this lead investor. I'm not going to spend another three months not building my business to try and get this lead investor. So what you can do with a party round is you can go to these investors who are committing to you and say, hey, you all follow it. You always want to follow up. We've got about 600K committed. It will allow us to get to this point before we can fundraise again. We can't find a lead investor. That being said, we'll do it at this valuation. What are your thoughts on that? And then party, tinkle with that valuation until everyone fits. And then you've got a party of investors who no one's led the round, but you've got a price round. They're all kind of okay at the price. And then you use that as leverage to get to the next milestone, right? To get to what's, what some people call an inflection point in your business, whether it's you know a revenue stream or whatever it is, or new product development, whatever it is, which will allow you to fundraise better in the future, right? The second thing, on like I said before about kind of failing and when it's, when it's failing, right? That's like if it's later stage, right? And that's really unlucky and you've done all this stuff and maybe you've had a people who are going to be lead investors and they right at the last end minute, they ended it, right? And that's just really unlucky. It doesn't always happen. But what 90% of the time happens with a failed fundraise is you know if your fundraise is going to fail within the first two weeks, right? Everyone's saying no to you the same reason. Everything's going wrong, all that kind of stuff. And what I see a lot of founders do is... They just carry on, right? They're like, oh yeah, I'll just carry on. It'll be fine, right? And then six months go down the line. Their, their business hasn't changed in any way because they've been so focused on business, on the fundraising and they haven't got anything, right? So what I always say is you should fail fast, right? If, if, you, if you do your process right, you have all your meetings in a two-week span. If most of them are saying no to you, well, most, most of them will be saying no to you, but if you feel like, okay, this is not working, like whether the market, a great example is a founder of, I was working with them, um, I'm not going to say their industry, but, um, well, they're in e-com, but I'm not going to say exactly what they were doing within e-com. And basically, like e-com has got a bit destroyed of a few things, right? Based around some of the the, the the bigger companies, and they're doing something fairly similar. But these fair, similar companies, basically, the tech companies who are doing similar kind of stuff that they were doing but different, have basically just failed, right? So I say it was a hyped up industry two years. These companies raised billions of dollars, and then pretty much every single one of them have failed. So they went out to fundraise two months ago. Right. And within the first month, we were kind of discussing whether this was going to happen. First two or three weeks, two or three weeks, pretty much every investor was on this single point of these things happen to these other companies. You're fairly similar. Mm. What's going to happen to you? Right. So if we're going to go back to biotech, right, it's probably something like uh, precision medicine is something similar, right? That could happen. What you need to realize is if, you, if this happens, you've messed up your narrative probably, or it's just the market is just not ready for you. Right. If that happens to you, there's no harm in failing fast. Fail fast, maybe get a quick angel round again, you know, get some money out so you can still keep yourself going and get to that next inflection point. Lick your wounds, find out what went wrong. It was like, what did I do wrong? Where did I go wrong? Whether it was narrative, whether it was process, whether it was network, whatever it was, and then go again. But you need to make sure that if if it's not working, don't carry on doing it. <laughs> You'd be like, it's not working, fail fast, mm -hmm. find out what went wrong, go again in six months or go again in a year, or again, like I said, get an angel round or get some party round done where you can still build your business and then realize where you went wrong and go again. Because yeah, I see what I've, I've speak to many founders where they, you know, I asked how long have you been fundraising for? And they say eight, nine, 12 months. And I'm like, Jesus, you, and what have you done in your business? And they're like, Oh, we've not, we've not done anything. Like I've been too busy fundraising. Mm. And, uh, you know, you destroy your business instantly at that point. So like you said, every founder will go through this point in their fundraise where they think it's all going to go horribly wrong. For those that it does turn around, like they get the offer, they get the term sheet. What should they be thinking at that point? Because I think there's two schools of thought here that cross my mind. 
We finally got a total. We've got a term sheet. Great. This is wonderful. Get it signed. Get the money in. Get it sorted. Don't even look at it. <laughs> just like, don't even negotiate it. Don't press too hard. We don't want to scare the investor off. Like that. Just, just get it done. The other school of thought is obviously interrogate that term sheet wildly. Make sure you're not getting screwed over in any way. Like negotiate the heck out of it. That will show them that we're a good founder. Like that will show them that we're talented and we've got good legal nous and we understand the implications for the future. That would be the other mindset. What should people be thinking and why? I think, I think as always, it's moderation, right? You don't want to be a pushover <laughs> and just like sign the term sheet, but you also don't want to be too aggressive. You know, I'll use a great example. I never, I never actually sat in a meeting with him on this, but, you know, Stephen Mendo at Many Pets, apparently he was one of the, you know, the hardest you know, to negotiate term sheets and terms on with us as a founder, as investors, right? He's built a $3 billion company. That company's, I think, going to be a decacorn in the next, you know, one of our best investments at Octopus. So I don't want you to think that if you go too hard, an investor's not going to like you. But at the same time, you don't want to be a pushover. Um, so I think there's a middle ground, right? Mm. And you've got to realize that the terms are very important and you need to understand the terms and you have to negotiate some terms. For example, I'll use an example. Um, I don't know if, if anyone in the, who's listening has heard of them, probably not, but they're a company called FanDuel. FanDuel was a fantasy league for the NFL, for the National Football League, right? So American football in America. Yep. I think, I'm pretty sure that's what they were doing. Um, FanDuel sold for like 700, 800 million, right? An amazing exit, right? Massive. The founders got zero money, like literally zero money because they had started preference shares such early doors and the preference shares went to like two or three X or four X, I think at one point. So before, by the time that they sold for 700 million, like I don't even think their series A investors got money because the preference shares were so crazy. Just explain preference shares before we go any further, just so people can get their heads around that bit. Preference shares are, they only really happen at series A plus and you know, they will pretty much every series A investment will have preference shares. What it basically means is whoever has preference shares will have preferred interest to get their money back they invested into mm. um, before everyone else. So let's keep it simple. Let's say it's a series A investment and that sit again, very simple. Let's say that series A investors put $10 million into a series A round and they had a one times preference share. And I won't go into participating and non-participating, but let's just say one times preference share to keep it simple. What will happen is let's say you sell for hundred million or let's, no, let's say you sell for 20 million. The first 10 million of that 20 million will go straight to the investors. And then what will happen is that the rest of the 10 million, depending on how it's built, will then go to everyone together or just certain people. That's basically how it works, right? But what can happen is that's one times preference share. If you do really, really kind of um, sharky, bad investor kind of stuff, is you can go to like two or three or four X, right? So let's, again, let's use the same example of, 10 million series A and the company X for 20 million. If you said, let's say it's 2X preference share, what would happen is if you sold for 20 million, the series A investors would get everything because they get the 10 million, but it's 2X, so they get 20. Wow. And it goes all to the investments, series A investors, right? So what happened to Fangio was like three or four X preference shares and they kept raising. And they, you know, they probably sold for 700 million because of those, because they probably wouldn't have raised. So there is some level in that regard. But you've got to realize that, you know, downstream, that's what happens, right? So if you do preference shares too early or you do 2X preference share at Series A to get it through or whatever it is, the next time you invest, you get investors, they're going to say, I want the same thing. And sometimes I may say, I want another thing. I want more than that. 
Um, so that's a, that's why you have to be savvy and you can't you shouldn't just take up straight an investment. And you're right, like you just said it there, like the best founders, they are either tech, they 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 are kind of legal savvy and also they're willing to negotiate. They know their 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 strength. One of the worst things is when you give a term sheet to a founder and they just trying to take it. Right. You don't want that desperation. So you do want to push back. But you need to know where you sit within that. Another thing as well is, you know, you want to make sure that you have some level of board control. You can't always have complete board control, but it's something that you need to make sure you have because you don't want an investor to completely change the trajectory of your company within reason. I think that's always going to happen once you take investment. But again, if you don't know these terms and you don't know what you're doing, that investor can take control pretty much instantaneously and completely change the thing you want to do, right? So it's these kind of things where you should definitely be negotiating your term sheet. You should know the things that you care about and also the things that investors care about and then basically work around it. And it should feel like both sides are, they're getting a good deal, but there's also some concession on both sides. That's what, that's what a good term sheet negotiation feels like. Talk talk to me about your model. So how are you supporting founders through all of this stuff? And yeah, how how do you build a business in, in what you do? Yeah. So I very much have been working again because I was felt that, you know, I I was was treating this like a tech company and pivoting and finding what what worked and what didn't. Mm. So for the last three years, I've been working one-to-one directly and I I will carry on doing that. I love working directly with founders. Um, But, you know, it can be quite, you know, it's the best way really, because you can work directly with me. Um, But also it's quite expensive, right? It's not, it's not necessarily cheap and it's probably only going to ever increase now. I realized that, but it very much was a way for me to test bed and work on an iterate of like what works and what doesn't. Now I'm basically building more scalable ways of helping founders in a, you know, again, because I know founders can't always afford what I do. And I know that to be honest with you, why charge is already very cheap considering what the, what else is out there. But, you know, I charge a flat fee for what, what I work with. And then directly it's on an as needed basis. And what I'm currently building, I've just done a cohort based course with Maven so it'll be very much group coaching of let's work through over three month period of building this founder origins, um, founder op- operating system. And then focusing on like what the exercise we do and building a kind of group format around it. So that's, that's basically what I'm working on right now. Um, but for everything, it's always a flat fee, right? I don't, I don't want to charge a success fee. I definitely don't want to take equity from founders. Anyone who wants that from you hmm. should run away from. And it's very much just a based on, I'm going to give you the tools and frameworks and allow you to fundraise and give you my knowledge and everything I've worked on the last three years to help founders raise 150 million plus. How have you found being a solopreneur, building a business? Yes. Um, yeah. Great just, question. Yeah. How, how are you, mate? How are you, how are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> so I, yeah, I mean, look, I think the grass is always greener. I love what I do. This is the first time I've been a solo founder, which I find really hard actually. I've always, every single one of my my previous startups, you know, I had like five, maybe can't remember five or six. I can never remember the number. I always had someone with me, you know, who I was with and I could leverage off. This is the first time I'm by myself. So I found that super hard. Um, in terms of like general entrepreneurship, I love what I do. I get to do the things I need to do. Again, there's always, the grass is always greener and everything and it's not perfect, but I would much prefer doing this than doing a nine to five corporate job. Um, so I'll take all of these negatives and I don't mind the negatives, you know, not necessarily having, you know, a complete salary, you know, not really being in control of every, well, being in control, but not really being in control of every founder will understand that 
that phrase, <laughs> you know, so there's a lot of negatives, but I, I would take them with anything in terms of like, actually what I do with founders. I love it. Uh, I mean, I, I love teaching. It's one of my favorite things in the world. It's, I've actually come one of my passions in the last few years. I was a teacher before as like a ski instructor and I always loved it, but I never really thought I'd do it as a career. But yeah, I love, I love teaching. I, I'm passionate about that. I get excited by, by teaching and I love the tech industry. So I get to do two of the things that I, I love doing. So, you know, I, 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 the biggest thing I'd hate is if I regretted, not regretted rather, or I was um, anxious or did never, never wanted to meet, you know, I think if it ever happened to me where I was anxious or didn't want to meet a founder into a call, I'd probably quit this instantly because that's the core of my business. Yeah. And every time I get excited, like I just cannot wait to jump on a call and discuss these kind of things and help them. And, you know, there's no better feeling than when you find out a founder has raised money and that they can do the things they want to do. Um, so yeah, super, super excited, super happy. And yeah, I mean, on, on the other side as well, a lot of stresses, but I really just do enjoy building things like currently building this group coaching um, and I've done the cohort and now I'm building group coaching from it. And it's just been an amazing journey to kind of take everything of mine and put it into something else and then help founders and see them love it. Um, Cause I got, I just did it for my first cohort and I got 4.9 out of five stars. So super happy with it and it's working and, and people love it. So it's all of these things that I love. And um, yeah, I'm very, very happy that I can mm. be in this position basically um, yeah, I can't complain, but as always, yeah, there's always some negatives <laughs> you have to kind of take into account. Definitely. And I've known you for many years, man. And like, I mean, but, and by the way, that is the, the, the least ego driven answer. You, you've placed all of your happiness in the helping of others there. So <laughs> and all of your joy. So like true. the Very least true. ego driven answer. So again, like that point about ego at the start, we should probably interrogate that. And, uh, in terms of your brand, that's <laughs> definitely not where it lives. Um, but one thing I wanted to ask you about, because obviously I, I've, as I say, I've known you for many years. I know the motivation that you've got behind this. I know that the joy that you take around doing a good job for people and the integrity that you hold yourself to. The challenge though, in your industry, I guess, is that there are, in most industries actually that are un, you know, unregulated, even, I mean, even some of the ones that are, you've got bad actors and where you've got yourself building a course and doing these, you know, a seminar and a one-to-one -one coaching and these words like seminars, coaching courses, there's no, the, the barrier to entry is so low with things like Skillshare and all the rest of it, that people are just flogging dead horses quite often and actually don't have that integrity and aren't selling a quality product. I know that you are, and like, I wonder kind of how you feel about that in your industry. And I guess, have you got any advice for people of how they do find the good ones or how, how you might separate good from the bad or how you see yourself differently and how you market yourself? Or is it just too difficult? I mean, I, I don't actually know, but I, I just know that this world of like courses and seminars and coaching just is just fraught with like difficulties for people to sort of cut the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, look, I think it's a great question. I I, th I think on, on the terms of like specifically on fundraising and I, I, t I totally agree with you. Right. And that's why I always kind of jump around the kind of talking about how I'm building a course. Cause I don't, I, there's a lot of bad actors and there's a lot of bad names for it's it. It's a right? hard thing to say. Oh, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And I think, I think the big reason why, and the things you need to look for is, and this specific to fundraising, but it's probably of everything to be honest with you, but there is no single silver bullet with fundraising. And also within fundraising, there's no, there's not really anything that you can do that's going to reduce your time in fundraising, right? So I could easily make more sales and make more money by saying these kinds of things, but I know they're not true. 
So anyone who's trying to sell you, I'm going to, I'm not, I'm going to make sure you don't have to ever build your network or I'm going to do these things. that's going to make you super simple and fast, or I'm going to make you do less. I, I even tell founders that if you work with me, I'm going to make you do more work. <laughs> I'm going to show you things that you have not been doing and that you need to be doing. So if anything, if you work with me, you're going to do more work, right? So I think it's, it's those things is there's no silver bullet. And if anything feels too good to be true, it's just not right in fundraising. Again, coming back to the point of this is an objective measurement. It's people to people. You have to do the work. There's a lot of work to do. And it's such a subjective thing around perception. This is the most important thing. So I think it's that. It's like, don't ever think there's a silver bullet. Yeah, I think I think that's the biggest one. I think the second one is actually see what they've done. Like, what are they have actually done? I see a lot of people in this industry who are, you know, 25-year-old consultants who have just decided to build a business or have spent mm. like a month in a VC fund um, or like as, as an intern and then decide that they can just do these things and know what they're doing. Um, you know, even just like being a couple of years in like a fundraising advisory thing, right? They just don't know. They don't, they've never seen mm. the, both sides of the table. They don't know the feelings of the way they these people feel and how that affects the way they act and why they do these things to actually build something that makes sense. That's why so many of these bad actors are just going straight into pitch decks because it's easy money. They can say this pitch deck is going to make you loads of money and charge loads of money for it without realizing the nuance around what that actually means and what actually makes an investment. Mm. So I think it's those two things, you know, unfortunately I'll use a good example. One of my, um, one of the people who just went through my cohort based course, he charged, he was spent 10 grand on different things before he came to me. And he literally sent me an email being like, I can't believe I've spent 10 grand on all of these things. I felt like I wasted my time and money on these things that didn't mean anything. And I've now gone through a course and I've seen all the things that I should have been focusing on. And I've spent all this money on pitch deck on all this stuff that wasn't really worth it. And yeah, it makes me feel bad, but at the same time, um, you know, all I can do is give my knowledge, show my experience, help people like when I can. And if they want to take me on and, but realize that I'm not a silver bullet and I'm not, you know, this quick, quick thing that they can do. And actually, if anything, I'm going to put more work on them and show them that there's just a lot of work you need to do and no one else can help you. Um, I just need to find the right people for me. And then that's fine. And they're going to be the ones that are successful, not the ones, you know, trying to get a quick buck or, you know, trying to just like, you know, objectify or simplify everything when everything's so complex. Um, so yeah, I just need to find the people I like working with and that's okay. Yeah. I love that. Before I let you go, mate, obviously I want to talk to, I want to talk to you about the market currently, because I think a lot of people are talking about this is a difficult market to raise money. It's a difficult market because investors aren't raising their next funds. Potentially Mm. it's a difficult market because this It's a difficult market because that what's your read on this and talk to me from the founder perspective and from the investor perspective. So what are investors going through right now? What are founders going through right now? And what is your advice for people raising money in this market? Sure. Yeah. So in the summer, actually, I did this, I did a quick, um, well, not quick, it was very long, but um, I did a semi-research project where I basically sat down with about, I can't remember the exact number, it was about 40 investors, like all of my people in my network and, and everything. And it was partly to do a catch up because I, I was in the UK for the summer, but it was also actually for me to basically understand this stuff, right? Again, knowing the way investors mm. think and why they do these things. I know that investors are, and they're in a nine to five, right? They're not like founders, like, you know, ourselves or the people listening to this. They have KPIs that they need to listen to. 
they need, you know, they 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 are defined by their KPIs because that defines whether they get promotions, whether they get, you know, high, um, you know, salary increases or bonuses, whatever it is, right? So I, I literally specifically asked someone in these meetings and these questions to really understand the market was what are your KPIs right now? Like what are they? Right? What are you actually looking for? And what's the future of the fund looking like? And the reason why I asked those specific questions, which most people wouldn't is I wanted to understand mm. the way that they're thinking in the market because again, they're KPI driven, right? So before 2022, especially in 2021, but then even when I was an investor in, you know, pre 2020, the KPIs of an investor was you you have this amount of money to invest, invest into the best companies and you need to invest into arbitrary number is obviously depends on the fund and the fund size, but you need to invest into 10 companies this year. Right. So I'll use us as octopus, for example, we'd, Again, I take these numbers with a grain of salt, but it'd be something like, here's 20 million in new investments. You have to invest into seven new health companies this year. So us in a health team, like five of us would be like, okay, we need to invest into seven health companies in this year. That's our goal. If we failed, if we don't do that. We're going to go to the year end and we're going to not be told off, obviously, but be like, you didn't do what you need to do. And we've got about 20 to 25 million to do that. Right. That was like, okay, let's say that was a KPI. That's what it was. Right. So if you're thinking about that, you can understand the way that an investor thinks when they're doing that. They're like, okay, this quarter, I have to make sure that we make one or two deals. It has to happen. Now what's happened since 2021, in 2022, this year, I think it's still going to happen until probably summer 2024. And then I don't know what's going to happen at that point is because of the way the market's going, because of the way that the portfolio companies are going later stage and how that relates to whether or not the investor's going to get a new fund done because the portfolios are semi-failing. And when they go to the re-raise a new fund and the investors say, okay, but well, what about this current fund you have in the portfolio? Where are they? And they need to make sure that those, you know, those portfolio companies have either exited or going to exit. The KPIs have changed, right? The KPIs went from make seven deals with 20 million investment to make some, make some deals if you can, but focus on the portfolio. Make sure the portfolio doesn't die, right? So interesting. What that's basically the reason why investments reduced. It's not the reason, you know. It, so most funds haven't just completely stopped investing. It's just their KPIs and the way that they're focusing on things have changed. They're just focusing a lot more on making sure the, the portfolio don't die, and whether that's putting new money into it or really focusing on how you can change the company or pivot it or improve the scale, whatever it is. So what happens there is. And this is where it becomes even more important. It always has been about, you know, investing into the best founders of the quarter or year or that they've met. But it's even more so now because investors aren't like, holy shit, I need to make a deal in this quarter. Otherwise, I'm not going to get a bonus. It's I'm focusing on my portfolio. And if a company comes across and they're amazing, I'm going to invest into them. That's what's happened. So it's always KPI driven. And that's, and that's the reason the market's the way it is again, driven from portfolio companies failing and, and raising new funds, but really then that driven down into KPIs. And that's the reason why the market is the way it is. And that's why we say, this is why it's so much even more important to build operating systems, create the right perception, do the right prep, because you ha there's even more of an importance to come across as, and be perceived as the best founder, because investors aren't looking for you necessarily as much as they were before. Awesome advice, mate. And Final question before I let you go, mate. Because you work cross-sector, health tech and biotech right now, is there anything particular, anything specific about 
these industries compared to others that might be more difficult or different or the funds are behaving slightly differently? Is there anything unique about those sectors or is this a case of that advice basically just applies across everywhere? Is there anything particular now that you've noticed? Not in terms of the way the market's going, but I can say in in terms of just generally the industry and this never changes is Mm. commercialization is the biggest obstacle and bottleneck for both biotech and health tech. So much more than most companies, right? In terms of whether you're built, you know, if you're building a B2B SaaS or like a B2C SaaS or whatever it is, the go-to-market is pretty simple. (laughs) Like, you know what you're doing. Whereas with health, because you have to play into so many different regulatory health systems, all of these other things, the biggest bottleneck is always commercialization, right? And any biotech investor or any health tech investor is known, some, well, not even, multiple of their portfolio companies where the technology works, like it is helping people. It actually works and proven to work. But whether it's the way the product's done or whether the way the founders are doing it or the weather or just the GTM that they've done, it just falls flat because they just don't know what they're doing, right? Or again, the product doesn't fit into it. So I don't think this will ever change, but it's something you need to focus on as it within kind of health tech and biotech is it never has to be solved. It doesn't, you don't need to know everything, but you need to be confident in how you talk about your commercialization and how it fits within the health system. Most most health founders just don't know this. You think you know it, but you just don't. Um, so, you know, when I'm working one-to-one with health founders, it's something we've, we really kind of delve deep into. Is like, what? how do you actually answer this question? Like, and what are you speaking of confidence on it? And does it make sense? And what have you done to show that you know what you're talking about? Um, because, again, especially when I was at Octopus, probably the most common reason why we in, we rejected a founder was we just didn't believe they knew what they were talking about in terms of GTM. Wise words. Um, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Um, and it's been a while, so thanks for coming back on. So, I mean, that is the most jam-packed episode with advice <laughs> and actionable advice that I think I've ever done on this podcast. Um, thank you for sharing it all. Now, for people that want your help, what is the best way for them to find you to learn about more that you what you do and to and to potentially get you on board sure yeah so i write on linkedin every day completely free you can you can look at everything on my writings i also have a a, a newsletter again free i've read about 47 48 issues now so getting up to 50 issues all around fundraising all around building systems in place of how you do this again on those three pillars so I'd always say the best way to connect me is start to read that and learn more and delve deeper into the way I think about things and the way I think you should build a fundraise. And then at that point, then you can connect to me if you if you if you agree with my thinkings. That's really nice. The words out your mouth were not by my course. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. Um Mate, as I say, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I hope some people get in touch with you. I can vouch for you as uh, a person and a founder with integrity. And um, I know that the founders that you've supported have gone on to do great things. Um, An absolute pleasure. And thank you again. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.